Hello and welcome to the Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. Short sellers have had a tough time of it over the past decade. The era of free money lifted all boats, including companies that would otherwise be candidates for short selling. Today's market is radically different. Central banks have lifted rates in a desperate attempt to control inflation. Global equity markets have performed well, but much of that can be attributed to the tech titans of the NASDAQ. Consumers have less money to spend, company costs are up, and top-line revenue is down. This is fertile hunting ground for short sellers. Short selling is risky and beyond the capacity of most investors. But that doesn't mean normal investors can't take on board short sellers' methods and positions, and steer clear of certain companies accordingly. I speak to a lot of hedge fund managers about their methods, but most aren't willing or able to expose their actual short positions. Dr. David Allen, who manages Plato's Global Alpha Fund, has no such qualms. In this episode of The Rules of Investing, Allen explains his red flag system for identifying shorts and some of the companies it's identified. He also discusses his long process, which draws on elements of growth, value, and quality. And it wouldn't be an episode of ROI without Alan naming some of the companies he has high conviction in right now. And now a word from our sponsor. Research shows that experienced investors are looking for an edge. As the first ever sponsor of Livewire's Rules of Investing podcast, Bell Direct is offering exclusive access to three current Bell Potter stock reports every week for a limited time and the chance to win a share of 3 million velocity frequent flyer points which we will explain at the end of this podcast. Dr. Dave Allen, welcome on the Rules of Investing. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, I'd love to go back. You have a background as a professional athlete in rugby union, um, or as us Victorians like to call it, backwards ball. (laughs) (laughs) What did you take away from life as an athlete, especially as it pertains to investing? Yeah, yeah, fair question. Like people, you know, often talking about, you know, what are the the learnings and uh, analogies. Uh, I guess the the biggest one for me is that investing, uh, like like rugby, like uh, you know AFL, um, is uh, it's a team sport, and it's about the people. Uh, you know, you you can if you try and play as an individual and try and do it all yourself, um, then you'll invariably come up short. You know the collective efforts always going to be going to be stronger. The collective ideas uh, are always going to be better, um, and that that's definitely something that you know all sporting teams these days are. Uh, they're not top ta- down and dictatorial. They're very much bottom up, um, sharing of the best ideas. And so yeah, it's very much the same in, in investing. Um, you know we're we're fortunate at Plato. We've got some some great minds there with. You know, over 20 years experience each so we can draw upon all the, those ideas and, and synthesize the, the very best thinking all around and then from there it was about 15 years running hedge funds at jp morgan uh, with a phd from cambridge in the middle of it take us through those experiences and what you took away from them yeah, uh, you know, I was very, very, very fortunate. It's fantastic uh, experiences to be able to to study at a place like that with uh, people that are a thousand times brighter uh, than I am, and uh, you know, got back there and managed to to play a bit of, a bit more rugby there as well. Um, the the experience at uh, 
at, at JP Morgan, I, I was very fortunate to, to fall into a fantastic group. I think when I, I joined um, JP Morgan Asset Management in London, we had 18 billion under management, uh, 18 billion euros, and that grew to 75 billion uh, at the peak. And, uh, you know, the, I had some, some incredible mentors over that period. Uh, my, my boss, the, the, the CIO, was, uh, he actually had a PhD in uh, artificial intelligence way back then, as well as... Uh, um, a master's in psychology, degree in biology, and was very much about um, the the best way to evolve ideas and get an edge over the competition is to be multifaceted and to to draw upon different disciplines and get the best thinking out of them, um, and get away from that group think where you employ everyone from who did a bachelor of commerce and think you're going to get interesting ideas. Um, so that was. Uh, you know, I was, I was really, really um, lucky w- with that. And uh, and in that time, uh, as well as being involved with lots of great individuals, uh, went through some, some pretty incredible times in markets. We had Brexit 2016. We had the GFC, which hit the UK incredibly hard. And, uh, you know, they say that, uh, you know, sometimes you learn more in a couple of weeks than you do in the preceding eight years. And it, it was very much like that in uh, in the GFC um, so many learnings about um, how to preserve capital and how to hold your nerve in those difficult times. Um, so, yeah, definitely was was much better investor um, after that period. How did you manage your positions during the GFC? Yeah, do, do you know what? Um, the We actually, um, going into the... Um, as the financial crisis uh, worsened, we were making a lot of money on our shorts. We, we were... And we uh, we probably got a little bit greedy. We reloaded those shorts as the the market trended down, and those incredibly distressed names, and it looked for all money that they'd go bankrupt and go to zero. And then all of a sudden, you've got uh, um, uh, central governments and central banks coming in and underwriting everything and providing a backstop. And even though we were right in a sense on the the fate of these companies, we got really badly burned on those short positions um, which was a, a, a you know that's the big learning that we had uh, out of that so the risk management on that short side is totally different than than what it looked like then looking back could you have known uh, that governments were going to put a floor under the whole thing yeah sure like I, I guess at the time I was a pretty uh, green investor with less than 10 years experience and uh yeah, with hindsight, you know, definitely could have uh, structured things uh, differently. Um, now, to this day, that's hardwired into our investment process that um, whether it's a distressed period in the markets or not, if, uh, if a stock itself is distressed, uh, we won't actually be short uh, that name. If a stock is, uh, is a little bit distressed, that's fine. But if a, a stock, for example, is off 70 to 80% off its peak, um, it... Uh, it sure it may go down a little bit more, but the risk is very much asymmetric at that point. Uh, it comes out with just a little bit of good news at that point, and say it's gone down from ten dollars to one dollar. It could easily go up to two dollars, and if you've reloaded that short position, you've lost a hundred percent on on your position and given up all that good work that that you've achieved so far. So. The, the risk management around the shorting side, uh, you know, there some things you can't learn out of a textbook. You can only learn by going through and, and, uh, and suffering. Um, but the good thing is you, you'll never make uh, those, uh, those mistakes twice. So, you know, much the better for it, I think. 
You're now running longshore strategies at Plato. Let's talk about process. How do you go about generating your alpha? Yeah, that really uh, good question which comes you know, to the heart of everything. Uh, we're a, a big believer in that you want the very best uh, value companies, the very best growth companies, and the very best quality companies in your portfolio at all times. You know, when I was at Jack Morgan, we had a you know, team of uh, 45 incredibly uh, bright investors, and we spent over a decade trying to develop models to style time, essentially to say, okay, now's the time to rotate into growth, or now is the time for quality. And after all that time and all that effort, uh, we never actually uh, decided to, to run any money on that, uh, that style timing process. And the reason is, is because uh, you can get a back test that looks great and you, you, know, you feel warm and fuzzy about it, but we never had confidence that um, going forward out of sample that you'd be able to predict well enough. And there's, there's great examples of that this year. Like who would have thought like value shot that out, lights out last year <laughs> and then everyone was like, oh, growth's done. Interest rates are going through the roof. It's just going to be an absolute car crash. And then look at where we are. Like every single month this year, MSCI World has trended upwards. NASDAQ's uh, up something ridiculous in the 30-odd percent. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so people who were, who were aggressively – and everything, you know, logically said, yeah, but this will be a time for value, but it, but it wasn't. AI comes along and uh, most people hadn't heard of ChatGPT till last November and then suddenly markets uh, ignite. So I think it's very dangerous to take big, bold style views. Um, in retrospect, people um, you know, think that they can make them, but you could easily be wrong and then rotate out and then it switches and then be wrong again and absolutely hemorrhage capital so our approach is very much designed to be an all-weather approach where we've always got the best value companies the best growth companies and the best quality companies globally you know we've got a universe of ten thousand stocks um that that we can find so i guess like a, a few of those examples that come to mind um, is you know, in, in the value bucket, if you like, BMW. Like BMW, um, incredible storied company. They've got a, uh, they're selling at a PE of six and a half times. Six and a half times that the long-term average for BMW is 12. Okay, and this incredibly well-run company, um, you know, incredible brand recognition uh, around the world. And uh, yet they're selling at six and a half times. People say, oh, well, they're not growing in the, the EV space. Well, actually... They're growing their EV fleet at 100% per year. They could easily be all electric within a decade if they wanted to. Um, Tesla's growing at 35% per annum. Um, so I know with Tesla at a P of 72 times and BMW at six and a half times, it's a huge discount. And uh, you know, I certainly know where, where we would rather be. So having great value opportunities, you know, that's the first leg. Great quality opportunities. So... A great quality name um, that we like is uh, is ASML. Now, this is a, a company I've, I've known and invested in for long t for a long time, and it's how we look to play the AI revolution. It uh, I, I personally think it's really really difficult to know who the downstream winners in AI uh, will be. Um, a good analogy here is in the early days of the internet, you know, the, our older listeners will remember your Ask Jeeves and your Alta Vista and, and this sort of thing and your Yahoo's even. Um, but um, 
no one really knew who would be the winners of search. And then Google comes along um, early 2000s with a better algorithm and just wipe out the competition, okay? Anticipating who the winners and losers are going to be is incredibly difficult, even for people in the inside. Um, so for emergent technologies, we will always play a, a picks and shovels type approach. So picks and shovels, uh, for us, that means ASML, so they have a, a virtual monopoly, about 90% market share on the deep ultraviolet lithography machines that are necessary for all of the most advanced chips um, involved in, in AI. So they're the very apex of the supply chain. They're a company with 20 billion euro in revenue and a backlog of 40 billion, margins of 70%. So incredible quality name, you know, very well poised. Great growth name uh, that, that we like in the portfolio. This is a, a company I've invested for, in for, for over a decade. And in the pharma space, people think of the biggest pharma companies in the world and they'll think of your Eli Lilly's, your AstraZeneca's, your Merck. Uh, well, Novo Nordis, Danish company, um, is now the biggest company in Europe and the third biggest company in uh the third biggest pharma company in the world. And uh, they're great, um, you know, every few years, uh, uh, every every couple of decades even, uh, a seismic shift comes in the pharma space where a new drug um, upends the, the industry. You know, you had you know, penicillin uh, in the 40s, you had Prozac in the 80s, in the 90s and 2000s, what you had the, the statins. Last decade, of course, the revolutionary immuno-oncology drugs, but... But now I think the blockbuster story over the next 10 years is going to be these anti-obesogenic drugs um, that are projected to be a $100 billion, um, revenue a year market um, within the next five or 10 years. So are they still going through trials or are they on the market now? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that. I was uh, um, I bumped into a, a buddy of mine on, uh, on Sunday and uh, hadn't, his old school buddy, hadn't seen him in, uh, in a few years. And he'd always been a been a big boy, and uh, I saw him, and he looked great. And I go, mate, you know, what's the what's the secret? What are you up to? And he goes, Azempic. And uh, anyway, his uh, his dad was a, a pharmacist that probably helped him to to get the the off label access because in Australia um, you can get a Ozempic, which is the the drug used for diabetics, um, but it's not. Um, it's not approved for obesity at this stage, um, but that's due to shortages because this drug is in such demand that um, they can't produce enough of it. Okay, so they've had to restrict it to just uh, people with diabetes. But uh, you know that that problem will, will get solved by the end of this year, maybe early uh, next year. You know that that's really our philosophy: always have the best value, the best growth, the best quality names in your portfolio. You know we had great performance. Um, last year, which was a value bear market. We've had great performance this year, which has been a growth bull market. Um, I, I think investors increasingly don't want that fast and famine where, you know, you beat the benchmark by 30%, then you give up 30%. They want more. Um, like there's a, an interesting uh, um, fact I, I learned the other day about uh, um, about Don Bradman and, uh, you know, obviously the greatest cricketer of, uh, of all time, averaging, you know, 99 or, or thereabouts and uh, how many sixes he hit in his career. And you'd think, you know, especially by these day standards, you know, he must have hit a bunch, but it's, he, I think he hit five. 
Okay, and his whole philosophy is, well, you can't get out if you only hit the ball on the ground. And that's very much our approach. Rather than just going all in, going, it's all about AI or it's all about mega cap tech or something like that, where we try to have lots and lots of thematics expressed in the portfolio and, uh, and, and try and hit singles rather than, than hit sixes. The, the other leg of the investment process that's really, I think, distinctive is the red flags. Uh, this is, you know... This is a bit bit corny, but Buffett always says two most important things in investing. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And that's very much what the red flags process is about. So we've got about 130 red flags that we will evaluate um, for every single stock before we trade long or short. And that does two things. It, it really stops us investing in landmines on the long side that are going to blow a hole in the portfolio, but even more powerfully, that's how we generate alpha on the short side, which has actually driven ninety uh, percent of the alpha um, since launch. So it's a one fifty fifty strategy. Uh, so one fifty percent long, fifty percent short. Uh, I got to ask if it's if the shorts have generated ninety percent of our performance, why do you not just invert <laughs> that equation? Yeah, that, that that's a really really good question. Um, some environments are really conducive to, to shorts. Some environments are really con- conducive to long. So in an area where you've got um, rates dropping, lots of liquidity dropping around, then shorting isn't as favourable and it's more favourable um, to be invested uh, long. You know, there's the tide lifts all, all boats. Um, but where we are now, where rates have... Uh, um, after being low for such a long time, have ratcheted up um, the most aggressively they have in 100 years. It, it's really um, applied the blowtorch to the valuations of so many things. Like that, that low rates environment inflated everything from Bitcoin to NFTs uh, to you know garbage companies who'd never made a profit, never will make a profit. Zombies. And zombies. So they were they were just kept alive. So that's. Uh, is a really good environment for shorting because suddenly the the rates are normalised, economic uh, fundamentals matter again, and that's why it's really conducive to shorting. Um, but but th- but that'll change. You know, we'll swing back, and and certain periods will be really conducive to longs. So that red flag system. Let's dig into that a bit further. You know, no company is is perfect. I'm sure the majority of companies throw up at least True. one True. red flag from time to time. Do you have a minimum number of flags you need to see before you're like, yep, I've got conviction on shorting that company? Yeah, sure. Like, you know, six, uh, you know, six and out seems to be, a, a, you know, the old backyard cricket rule seems to be a, a reasonable number. But one thing that, that's really um, important is that just because a company has a lot of red flags, that's absolutely not a reason for us in isolation to go short. If a company has incredibly strong sentiment, and and uh, uh, then we won't stand in the way of that. And think, for example, like your meme stocks, they had a horrendous number of red flags. Um, you know, your Bed Bath and Beyonds and your GameStops. And they, didn't, they didn't have any green flags. Yeah, no, no, no <laughs> green flags. Um, but you, you would be a braver man than me if you wanted to short those names. Um, you know, that he, some hedge funds that have been around for decades will put out a business shorting those names. You know, the, the most irrational um, thing you can do sometimes is 
to try and be too rational in an irrational market. Have you ever copped a short squeeze, like oh, like the GameStop situation? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I remember um, with Volkswagen, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, we were on the wrong side of that, and you know, it uh, even it, it's a difficult situation because even though you know eventually the price will fall back to earth, and uh, if you're bleeding PL in the in the meantime, um, then it can be quite painful. Um, one thing that we do with our shorts is we're very, very modest in how we size them. They're, our typical shorts 40% smaller than our typical longs, and it's because you can get these short squeezes. You can get stocks bid for, you know, which we do um, from time to time. Um, so by being just sensible how you size them, it uh, enables you to generate the great alpha that's available there but without you know, really hurting yourself. Uh, with the flags, are you seeing any flags – specific flags at the moment that are coming up more than others given where we are in the cycle yeah definitely that, that's a, a great question uh, um, sometimes people ask they say look there's 130 red flags but is there one red flag that if you could only use one for the rest of your life that you would use and it would be this persistently negative um, operating cash flow so Quite simply, in plain English, it just means a company can't even generate enough profits um, to cover its, uh, you know, its interest or any other expenses. It, it's uh, standalone. It's, it's going backwards, and there is uh, an absolute proliferation of these companies. The the, the phrase "zombie companies" is, is related to this, and that was coined in in 1990s Japan, where all these companies were essentially on life support. They could only survive because interest rates were were zero, and interesting in Japan, you're not seeing many of these companies at all right now. But in Australia, um, Australia, um, we have a huge number of, uh, we've got the most number of uh, proportion of companies with negative operating cash flow out of any other developed market in the world. And uh, it's made Australia quite a fertile area for, for shorting and where you know, a bunch of our short alpha you know, has come from. So can you name any shorts at the moment you have high conviction in? Well, within a high conviction short, uh, at the moment is commercial real estate. And it's no secret to, to anyone who works in the city how empty it is. It's like a ghost town on, on Mondays. Fridays aren't much better. Uh, I think COVID has fundamentally changed the way people will work and the flexibility that they desire. And as a result, if you have a building that's uh, it's not an A building, it's, uh, it's not... Um, in the UK, if your building doesn't meet the very highest of environmental standards, you're going to struggle um, renting it out. Um, so that's a, you know, people think of the term stranded assets and they'll think about coal mines. But you know, when I look out this, this window now and uh, you can see, see lots of stranded assets that you know, I, I certainly wanna, wouldn't want to be, be holding those. So a name... Um, Involved in the commercial real estate that we're, we've done very well shorting, um, we've made about twenty five percent on it, is Lendlease. You know what's interesting? I think about Lendlease is this is a company that uh, since two thousand and nine, in incredibly accommodating circumstances, rates have been really, really low. Property prices super buoyant, and on a cumulative basis, they've they haven't made positive um, free cash flow in a great environment. Suddenly you're in a tough environment where rates are a lot higher, there's a genuine cost of capital and you've got um, you know, a, a change in, in working habits. Uh, to give you an idea, I was speaking to 
um, uh, a mate of mine uh, the other day um, that uh, um, he is CEO of a, a listed uh, company that, that I won't name, and he was saying that uh, that they're actually um, tearing down office space in Ryde and putting um, in, and changing it to industrial. Um, like Ryde, it's not a long way. It's not we're not talking Penrith, and if that's happening, that tells you something pretty fundamental is happening with the the way we work. Any other uh, companies in other sectors, perhaps, that are throwing up some red flags? Uh, within uh, within uh, Australia, um, th- this is a, a name that we're we're no longer short. Um, we were short, uh, but there's a, a company called Brainchip, and Brainchip uh, have twenty three red flags. You know, which is out of the ten thousand companies we look at globally, it's uh, it's the second most. And when you look at Brainchip. Uh, um, you read their website and I encourage you to go on their website. If you can work out what they do, then you're, you're smarter uh, than I am. But they're, they're a company that had a market cap, I think, of a couple of billion, uh, you know, towards uh, the, the start of the year around that point, and they've got less revenue than some cafes. Um, you know, if a company's mentioned a lot on hot copper and, and these sorts of things, um, then you need to be very wary. But that's a very good example of a name that we, we made good money shorting on, um, but uh, is, uh, you know, is now a long way off its highs. And you know, the, the risk is potentially asymmetric at this point. So they can do something minor where they get, a, they get a patent approved and it can go up 10%. So we'll move on and redeploy that capital to where we think alpha opportunities are, are more favourable. You mentioned there that they have the second highest number of red flags. Can I ask who has the most? Um, I, I think I have to check with the compliance because we that's are all short right. <laughs> But that said, you're very open about talking about your shorts, um, Dave, and I get a lot of hedge fund managers on the podcast and they're very reluctant to talk about their short book at all. They can talk about process, but they they don't want to name often even past shorting positions. Um, I think it's because they don't want to lose access to the C-suite, but you clearly don't have the same <laughs> concerns. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, so I guess uh, part of that is like in terms of access to the, the C-suite, I think uh, 10, 15 years ago that was incredibly valuable, but uh, I don't think it really is now. Um, regulations being tight as they are and as they should be, you, you can't go and have a face-to-face with uh, a, a global listed CEO, CFO, and for them to give you um, information that's really not in the public domain already. Um, so, But what can happen is uh, a good CEO is also a really good salesperson. And you never come out, I don't think I've ever come out of a company meeting being much more bullish on the prospects of that company than I, I was before that. So... I don't, I don't think it's good bang for your buck in terms of uh, the, those company meetings and it, it can also compromise your objectivity. Um, so that's not something that, uh, that particularly concerns me. Pivoting away and talking a little bit about you know, cult of personality, as you just mentioned, um, Qantas is in the public sin bin, uh, but you're actually pretty bullish the stock. Why is it not a value trap? Yeah, no, that's... Uh, that's a, a, a very, very good question. I, I probably should emphasise that the Play-Doh Global Alpha uh, Fund that we're talking about or that, that I run, that's where we're long. And uh, you know, there, there's other Play-Doh funds that have various um, 
ESG sensibilities that are, are quite different and that's absolutely fine. Um, if you look at the, like, uh, one thing I agree with is that there are various red flags on, on Qantas. Like, one of the things that we look at to get an idea of, um, I mentioned the importance of people and team and culture at the start of the podcast. One of the, How do you gauge that for a company from the outside? One of the ways we do it is to use... Um, uh, online review systems um, where company where employees can place reviews and say oh, it's great working at, at Livewire they've got a great culture and they evaluate it and it gets a star rating and there's very deep ratings you can get on uh, on companies like Qantas and you can see that through time the morale um, and satisfaction people are getting at Qantas is not surprisingly going through the floor out of the twenty sort of comparable airlines we look at. And when we look at that data, Qantas is right down the bottom in terms of that, that culture and morale. Um, so that there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of red flags. Um, there's, you know, remuneration that, you know, is pretty out of whack um, with the brand damage that's gone on. There's record complaints to the ACCC. So there's lots of stuff, right? And, oh, oh, and the biggest red flag is, you know, we're – Finally, after COVID, uh, me and my family went to Hawaii, and then you know was uh, had to they bungled the the luggage, and we were, I was sitting on the Waikiki beach in my tracksuit pants, uh, sweating <laughs> bullets for for a couple of weeks. So that so, but but it's important, you know, like uh, you know I don't want to, yeah, like you never want to invest angry. You know, yeah. just because I don't like a, you know, like I, I'm disappointed at a company or you know frustrated with a company. You don't want to short them, short no, them on Waikiki yeah, Beach. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, like that. Like, so when a mate of mine read some research that I'd done on Qantas and uh, and he he gave me a call straight away and you know he's you know super pissed off uh, with Qantas and he's like. You know, and he knows the company well, and he, he gives the the bear case and. Uh, and you know, he steamed up, and I go, mate. There's a bit of noise in the background. I worry now. He goes, oh, I'm in the business lounge at Qantas, but you know, he's just <laughs> like, you know, like I, I get it. But in in lots of cases, you go to book something else, and there's no option. They've got 62 percent market share in Australia, right? And so, at at this valuation, like what the what's the the, the free cash flow, it's like, um, or, or the PE, it's like f- five or six times, you know, like if you look at it on a, on a free ca- price of cash flow basis, I think it's in the, the cheapest percentile that it's ever been. You know, the gross margins have gone up from, you know, 20 to 25%. Uh, the, you know, the sell side's just upgraded, upgraded, upgraded the the revenue and, and earnings uh, projection. So, is it um, have they conducted themselves in a great way? Not at all. But in terms of are they incredibly profitable business with high market share? Yes. A lot of that, however, though, has come from skimping on capex. I mean, they should have been buying planes and they weren't. Yep. Right. And and and, and that's and now, and now they've got a bloody big bill. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and and that's that's absolutely true. And uh, I think, you know, the, the numbers aren't going to be as great um, going forward. It's been window dressed a, a bit. Um, but, but nevertheless, uh, I think um, they're, they're, in a, they're in a pretty good uh, position. Um, 
you know, the labor force is way smaller than it used to be. And I know that's, that's, you know, a sad thing, but in terms of um, the overheads that they face and how they've outsourced things, then from uh, an equity holders perspective, you can see how that would be, be favorable. So, Sounds like is that a market share play or a too big to fail play or a bit of bit of both? But a, a bit, a bit of both. Like you know, Qantas they're never going to let go bust, are they? And when you can get on on that sort clearly. of clearly, clearly, <laughs> when you can get on on that sort of multiple, they've got new CEO. Hopefully, reset the narrative at some point. You know, Qantas. If you, you know, a great chart to look at is the um, the price chart of Qantas overlaid with their earnings forecast, and it moves in lockstep. Okay. Just, you know, the second the earnings forecast go up, the price ratchets up, okay, and vice versa. Except for the last month or two, you've seen a decoupling. The price has fallen off a cliff and the earnings is forecast have continued to go up. Ultimately, what matters in markets is fundamentals like earnings, revenue and cash flow. And I think that relationship will reassert itself um, and... Uh, um, the the company will uh, will prove to be a good investment over the next five years. You spoke earlier about the importance of sentiment um, when you're shorting um, and the threat that poses to to jump out and bite you. Um, does the inverse also apply here with Qantas, where you know public sentiment is just so bad? Yes, that that's that's almost a basis for going long. Yeah, so because I mean, it, like you know. It's going to revert to the mean to some extent, you'd imagine, as things settle down. Yeah, I, th I think so. You know, like when we, when I talk about sentiment, the main things that we are looking at are, um, firstly, we don't look at sell site consensus numbers. Um, if uh, a company will typically have like it might have like twenty analysts covering it, there's usually two or three that are really sharp that move early. The rest sort of heard to after the fact. So we for every company we identified who these star um, lead analysts are, and we watch them like a hawk. Um, what their revenue, earnings, cash flow, price projections are and the second that they're changing their numbers we're potentially changing our views so their sentiment is still you know quite bullish on on Qantas in terms of sentiment of man on the street it, yeah it's obviously quite negative um, but uh, um, that uh, it, that doesn't seem to be flowing through to the their earnings which is the, the most important thing this all kind of speaks to the idea that a good company doesn't necessarily make a good stock and, and yeah. vice versa. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like there's, uh, you look at like a, a couple of incredible companies like uh, um, like Ferrari or Hermes and, you know, unfortunately my wife also thinks that's an incredible brand. Um, but uh, that uh, they're companies that have 40, 50% return on equity, incredible um, brand equity but they trade on PEs of, of, of 50 times and uh, at big premiums to their discounted cash flows. So they're great companies, but I don't think they're necessarily great stocks. Let's talk NVIDIA. That's obviously been the standout stock pertaining to about 230%. Is it still an attractive investment at these valuations? Yeah, like we we look at it uh, and we, th we think the valuation is... Uh, is uh, is 
demanding, um, but it's not um, it's not something that we like. We're, we're still invested in it. We've been invested in it um, for for some time. We've trimmed that position a, a little bit because the the valuation it, it definitely it definitely is toppy, but. Well, we just see it's going to be such a, a long-term winner in that space that we're pretty happy um, with that positioning. Again, a, a hallmark of our approach is you know, we don't hold 10% of the portfolio in NVIDIA. We don't hold 10% in Tesla. You know, that we're, you know, even that Qantas um, position that we talked about, it's like, it's like half a percent of the portfolio. So if we get it wrong and, and we absolutely do, like a, a top quartile fund manager is only gets 55% of their stock picks right because markets are quite efficient, they're quite hard to beat. You know, we think we can get in the high 50s, uh, about 6 out of 10 right, um, but you know, we, we try and size our things in accordance with the fact that um, we are going to get them wrong. Um, so yeah, we've got modest uh, overweights in NVIDIA, but nothing massive. So you lean more to the into the diversification camp rather than the high concentration uh, thought school of thought in investing? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like uh, I think um, what makes investing so fascinating is there's no right or wrong way. You know, you look at Buffett, um, you know, revered as the best investor of all time and his whole mantra is, you know, put all your eggs in one basket and then watch that basket. Um, and that's uh, undoubtedly can work incredibly well. But at the other end of the spectrum, the most uh, successful hedge fund of all time, uh, Renaissance, uh, they've done um, 35% annualised returns for 25, 30 years, and that's after fees of, wait for four and 40, you know, <laughs> so just like rid- ridiculous, and they have thousands of positions. So I don't think that there's any one right or wrong way. Uh, our preference is uh, is certainly more um, diversification than your typical um, you know 20 stock uh, portfolio and that's really um, you know reflecting what I mentioned before that you know you, even the best investor your hit rate's not that high so you you want to make sure that you you're not all in and you know if you do get something wrong or something happens that you didn't expect maybe you're short a name and it gets bid for out of the blue that you, you don't um, do yourself a real disservice. Okay, we always finish with three favourite questions uh, in our podcast, Dave. Question one, what's one thing investors are getting wrong about today's markets? Well, it actually relates to just what I I said. There's a a real view um, that the only way to generate um, attractive returns is to be super concentrated. And, you know, from a high level, it kind of makes sense. Oh, yeah, you need to take big, punchy bets. Um, But uh, uh, our performance like we're we're generating uh plus eight and a half percent over and above what the msci world is doing per annum you know we've done that with hundreds of stocks in the portfolio um so and uh, you know we do that uh, and how do we do that well we've got this 150 50 so 150 percent invested long so we've got 50 percent more firepower in our best ideas and we've got this 50 percent short engine as well to generate alpha which has been a, a great source of, of alpha so i guess uh yeah that, that's the biggest mistake I, I think for me that people think that you've got to be super concentrated otherwise you, you're not going to get good returns uh, you know that there's lots of lots of ways about this so you're eating that free lunch well i'm trying my best <laughs> <laughs> um question two could you share a story of a big win or a big loss or both 
uh, you've had in your investment career. What happened and what did you take away from it? Yeah, yeah, great, uh, great question. So I would say that back in, in uh, 2014, I was invested in a, a Spanish tech company. And this company, it was called Let's Go X. And uh, it had been an incredible investment for us. I think it had gone up like 45-fold. And we're thinking that we were, you know, pretty hot stuff uh, making that. Uh, but markets, you know, as they do have a way of, of humbling you. And, you know, I think it was soon after the Spanish Prime Minister came out and lauded this company is the it's going to be the next unicorn and, you know, it's the shining light in Europe that it's uncovered as a massive accounting fraud. Stock price goes to zero, CEO gets indicted for fraud. Okay. And we're like, wow, okay, what did we, uh, what did we miss there? You know, you know, you, you never, you know, there's no problem making a mistake. We all make them, but let's just make sure we don't make the same one twice. So when we did the post-mortem, we said, well, actually, there was, um, there's two things that we missed. Well, ma- maybe three. The first, the first one was they were, they were doing public Wi-Fi. And whenever I was uh, in an airport traveling around Europe, it never worked. <laughs> right. So, fair. The, the second one was they had an auditor that no one else um, in the world was using. Okay. The third one was they were paying that order for a really strange amount, only 0.02% of revenue. And um, typically... What, what would, what, yeah, about, what would a normal order charge? About percent for, this ty- percent for this type of company at this uh, life stage. And anyway, we said, okay, well, let's uh, get as much data as we can. So we've got 10 years of data across 10 different countries, so tens of thousands of stocks, and said... Whenever a, a company is using a very obscure auditor, what does that actually mean going forward? And sure enough, if a company is using a very um, unusual auditor um, or small auditor, then they going forward they tend to be more risky and tend to underperform. Okay, and it's funny. Like the second that someone's pointed that out to you, I guarantee the next um, big fraud or accounting manipulation that you look at they'll have an unusual auditor. Um, so a good example, uh, Adani, um, accounting manipulation, and they were using auditors that were, were too junior, too green, that didn't have the sophistication to understand the, the web of uh, uh, transactions uh, and corporations that they were looking at. Uh, if you look at Bernie Madoff, had his uncle up in Queens doing the books, you know, so s- same sort of thing. Uh, I guess the prototypical example would be Enron. Yeah, so, so Enron, um, I can't remember who the, the auditor was there. Um, uh, that, but Enron, do you know what? There were, there were poster child for um, related party transactions and uh, special purpose vehicles, related party transactions present in pretty much every fraud um, that, you, that you look at. Um, so the great thing about that is that actually um, uh, spawned the – the red flags approach where we went through every accounting manipulation and bankruptcy we could get our hands on over the decades and built up this toolkit. So we've got 130 red flags like that, like the um, obscure auditor. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we make sure that um, any company we invest in you know, has a low number of red flags. The names we're short tend to have a, a high number of red flags. I still remember Volkswagen had uh, 17 red flags going into emissions gate. Um, their cheating scanner. Of course, it doesn't guarantee there's going to be fraud, but it just makes it a lot more likely. Um, so yeah, that that was a, a name. That was a, a big loss. That was uh, um, 
you know, we, we just learned so much from because it, it sort of opened our eyes to a whole new way of uh, of investing, um, which uh, is uh, has been you know very very profitable to this day. Question three: If markets were to close tomorrow, hypothetically, for five years, and you could only own shares in one company, what company would that be, and why? I would say, uh, even though it's going diametrically opposed to what I've just said about the you know, <laughs> diversification, the anti-obesogenic drugs I think are, are phenomenally exciting. They, uh, um, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, there will probably be a duopoly there, but uh, it could very well be a hundred billion um, revenue market um, before before long, um, especially when it's been described as the the Swiss Army knife of uh, or potential Swiss Army knife of medications, where um, it's shown promise for addiction, arthritis, um, obviously twenty um, percent reduction in heart disease, diabetes. Um, so it, it is quite a, quite phenomenal. Um, you know, obesity is the fourth biggest killer globally um, but there's a whole bunch of other killers like high blood pressure that uh, will be um, will be improved um, with uh, with these drugs so I think that that's an incredibly uh, um, exciting uh, space to, to be in and they could be um, you know just absolutely dominant in, in the pharma space in years to come Dave Allen this has been a great chat thanks so much for coming on the rules of investing thanks so much for having me really enjoyed it I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. David Allen. Thanks to Bell Direct for their support of this podcast. And remember, for a limited time, you can get three Bell Potter stock reports each week and you will go into the draw to win a share of 3 million velocity frequent flyer points. So go to Bell Direct, check the full terms and conditions and look for the Livewire logo to get your Bell Potter stock reports now. Competition ends 31st October 2023. Entry conditions and eligibility criteria apply. New South Wales Authority number TP forward slash 02866. South Australia permit number T23 forward slash 123. ACT permit number TP23 forward slash 01592.